puts all these children up front here realized that at least a certain percentage of them your grandchildren some of your you original ones here that's pretty special think of all you young families that are in the middle of child rearing God bless you well worth it put your heart and your life into it I think it's pretty special to recognize that as a church. See our children getting married and uh, some of you are sitting here and you are the age of your parents when the parents made this big step to sign Christian Fellowship. So may the coming years just continue to roll along and produce Faithful children and grandchildren and great-grandchildren. How wonderful. Heard the good work of a minister. My thoughts went to Malachi and chapter 3. If you want to turn there. Malachi chapter 3. Towards the end of the of chapter three, verse thirteen, from verses thirteen to eighteen, we have two different people groups, and the first one we want to consider is a group that became disillusioned. I had to think of that when Brother Elvin was speaking about a minister. Sometimes we can get disillusioned. We have here. Verse 13, God speaking, your words have been stout against me, saith the Lord. Yet you say, what have we spoken so much against thee? You have said, it is vain to serve God. And what profit is it that we kept his ordinance, that we have walked mournfully before the Lord of hosts? And as Brother Elvin was speaking, My mind went to Elijah. Elijah, after that, what we would call a great showdown on Mount Carmel. It was the next day he ran for his life because one woman put a threat on his head. It's over. I'm done. There's no one else. I've fought so faithfully and I'm alone. So just take my life away. And I think if God would have came and and told him, you've spoken against me. He said, no, I didn't speak against you. I was just speaking about, and he was disillusioned. And I thought, well, that comes pretty close home. That comes pretty close home. How often have I said, I don't know. I don't know. I just, I feel like just being like Peter, I go fishing. I've said that more than once. Just let me go back to my little dairy farm. The cows, they never become disillusioned. Verse 15, now we call the proud happy, yea, that they that work wickedness are set up, yea, they that tempt God are even delivered. We might not go that far, but let's let's just go efficient. 
let's just go a fishing. And then I thought a little farther than that in light of my message this morning and I, I'm not sure I specifically asked what's expected in that, so I'm hoping to fulfill what was expected. But there are many people today that have become disillusioned with the church. Disillusioned with the church. For some of them, maybe for some good reason. But disillusionment can really cause a person to lose their way. So we have this one group. They become disillusioned. What's the point in serving God? It seems like those that aren't serving God are having a better life than I am. I just go fishing. But there's another group of people here. Verse 16. Then they that feared the Lord spake often one to another. Sounds to me like community. That sounds to me like a group of people who just love to be together. Can't wait till Sunday morning. It's Sunday morning. I get to go to be with my brothers and sisters. Maybe it's call on the telephone, encouraging one another. God's listening. Maybe it's Sunday afternoon after the fellowship meal or Sunday after we invite a few folks home for the noon meal, sit together. Then they that feared the Lord spake often one to another. The Lord hearkened and heard it. The Lord hearkened. Apparently, it, it, it calls God to be moved. He, he hearkened. So if I would say somebody's name out in the crowd, they would say yes. In other words, they hearkened. They responded. God responded here. He heard it, and I think the way he responded was he started writing it down. Started writing it down. He wrote down a book of remembrance. It was written before him for them that feared the Lord, that thought about his name, and they shall be mine, saith the Lord of hosts. Who are the ones that are going to make up his jewels when he comes back to gather his church? It's those that thought about his name and that sat together and had community. It is so easy, so easy to get a disillusion with the church. And I don't know if there's anyone here like that, but if you are, don't react. This is still what God's looking for. What's the point of ever going to church again? I mean, church just seems like those that feared the Lord, they spake oft one with another. The Lord hearkened, and he had a book written. In remembrance, they shall be mine, saith the Lord of hosts, in that day when I make up my jewels, I will spare them, as a man spareth his own son that serveth him. Then shall you return and discern between the righteous and the wicked, between him that serveth God and him that serveth him not. In other words, I think those 
that sat together and spake often one with another will see the difference. They won't be disillusioned like, I almost think it's better out there. I think I'm just going to go home and I'm going to church with my family by themselves. I think those that really see the value, the blessing sitting together, fearing the Lord, uh, speaking one to another, they're going to be able to say, this is it. This is it. But there, there is, sad to say, many who have become disillusioned with church. So our consideration for the message this morning is the blessing of church leadership. The blessing of church leadership. And there is one thing that my father did for his family. And my hat is off. My hat is off. My father, maybe even to a fault, was very, very, very faithful to the church and to the leadership. I grew up, and in, in our home, there was no difference between, between the way we lived out our belief in Christianity and the way the ministers lived it out. Now, in our church that I grew up in, there was, for the most part, a very big difference between the standard that the ministry had and many of the people. As I look back today, and I see how my father took a very, very specific interest. Here's the church. I value the church. And he had, he had us. He had an interest in, in the, the church, the ministry, and he had us walk it out also. We were about one or two, we were probably two or three in our local congregation there that did a lot of things that none of the others did. None of the other families did. Just a few of us. And we were even mocked. But the, the loyalty to, that my father had for the church, the loyalty, I never, I never remember him once complaining about the church, never once complaining about the ministry, never once complaining about the practical applications that the church had made to principles in the Bible. I never heard him complain about it. He lived that out so passionately. It's really good. It has come back to bless me over and over again. Never a single word questioning leadership, church decisions, or church direction. Church, when the church was divided over a specific thing, he always leaned with the ministry. If the ministry didn't accept it, he didn't accept it. It was a man of few words. We didn't hear much about it. But his life showed it. He figured out the heart of the leadership, and we were required to follow it, even though we were the minority. We were mocked many a time, 
But in my mind, it was no question. And I often marveled at that. I did not chafe. I did not chafe at some of the specific lifestyle choices that my father made. I don't remember ever chafing. We had just simply accepted, and we were even okay to be mocked by some of our own people. Yeah, that has come back to bless me over and over again. We were a few. We were a minority. We stood out as strict, plain, old-fashioned, but that didn't matter to my father. He was content if this is the if this is what the church has decided is practical application to Bible principles, then he's going to do it. Now again, probably maybe dotted in some ways to a fault, but the fault was not his loyalty to the strong group mentality. And I think that's something that we need to really take some consideration to that strong group mentality. Not each man to himself. Though, with that strong group mentality, there may have been some very other important elements missing. I must say that that has come back to bless me over and over again. Two very crucial areas that this was foundational in my life. And if it wouldn't have been a part of my life, I don't know where I'd be today. One of those were, we had left, my wife and I had left the former congregation, or former church setting, and we had started uh, visiting charity. We visited there three years. We weren't committed in those three years, and so we were kind of at a very vulnerable spot. And I just remember one Sunday morning that the few families we were very close to, one of them said, you know, Leonard, we really don't have to go drive that hour to church this morning. We're going to have church here. And I'm like, well, sure. What's wrong with that? No problem with that. And so a couple of us families, we got together. We had church. Did we have church? We tried to have church. Kind of a unique and interesting situation. Still shake my head at the whole thing. We did that for probably two weeks, and then the ministry from charity called us brothers to a brother's meeting, and we sat in this brother's meeting, and the situation got really tense between the ministry, and I was, I was I'm not even sure I talked a whole lot. The others were the spokespeople. And it got tense enough that those brothers finally just got up and they all walked out. And then I had a decision to make. And I look back and I see how my father had a respect and an honor for church. And I really think that was very foundational at that very moment. What was I going to do? I had a choice. I either would turn away and leave my friends down and remain sitting, or I would get up and show that I don't care about church, I don't care about ministry, I don't care about God's authority, and I could have got up and walked out. I remained seated. Today, 
And many times I have looked back and said, that was crucial. That was a moment that could have totally changed my life, my wife, and my children, and my great-grandchildren, and they're on. And I still think a lot of it goes back to the loyalty that my father lived out. Years later, I was in a very difficult church relationship, and after attempting many times to try to fix it, I finally said, I want out. Let me out. But here again, there was a couple of things that I again look back at my father and his loyalty to the church that I think has really helped me. So I wanted out, and I knew I would need to ask permission from the overseeing church leader. And I don't even know why I didn't go, but I, I sent a delegate of brothers to go ask that I could just be dismissed. And I don't know what that conversation was. I just do know this much. When those brothers came back, they said, it's no. Pretty simple. I don't even think I heard what all the reasoning was. It was just simply no. And I bowed my heart to it. Again, that's not who I was. I was, I, I know I could have been someone very different, but I still look back and I look at the loyalty that my father had. I want to pass that on to my children. I want to pass it on to my grandchildren. This idea of community, this idea of strong group mentality. I want to pass that on. Anyhow, so what I was forced to do, I was forced to look at my need. Because of this relationship, I knew I couldn't get out and I couldn't stay in. And so I went to God and I sought God and I sought God and I sought God till he did a miracle in my heart. Only to find out later that on the other side, he did the very same miracle at the very same time. And what was probably could have been considered hatred, God turned in that into a love and laid a platform in my heart, opened my heart wide enough that that relationship could begin to repair. And repaired it, he did. Again, I look back and I just think, my father had done me a favor. Turning your Bibles to Joshua chapter 1. One of the things we've been considering these yesterday and today is leadership. We're going to consider people, uh, we as a congregation, our response to the church, to the ministry, to the strong group mentality. And I think here is a very beautiful uh, passage of scripture that we could make application to our day today. The first number of verses, I think it's to verse 9, the first half, it's half of the chapter, there's 18 verses, is speaking to the leader, and then the second half is primarily being spoken to and the response of the people. So let's consider that. Now after the death of Moses, the servant of the Lord, it came to pass that the Lord spake unto Joshua, the son of Nun, 
Moses' minister, saying, Moses, my servant, is dead. Now therefore arise, go over this Jordan, thou and all this people, unto the land which I do give to them, even to the children of Israel. Every place that the sole of your feet should tread upon, that I have given unto you, as I said unto Moses. From the wilderness and this Lebanon, even unto the great river, the river Euphrates, all the land of the Hittites, unto the great sea, toward the going down of the sun, shall be your coast. There shall not any man be able to stand before thee all the days of thy life. As I was with Moses, so I will be with thee. I will not fail thee, nor forsake thee. What beautiful words for any man in leadership. And those of us as leaders, let's consider these verses. Be strong. Have a good courage. Don't get disillusioned. From this people shall thou divide for an inheritance unto the land. Reminds me of Brother Elvin's message this morning. I will build my church. I will give for an inheritance. I will divide for inheritance the land which I swear unto their fathers to give them. Only be thou strong and very courageous that thou mayest observe to do according to all the law. This is where... Leadership becomes very uh, safe to follow. Do according to all the law which Moses, my servant, commanded thee. Turn not from it to the right hand or to the left, that thou mayest prosper whithersoever thou goest. This book of the law shall not depart out of thy mouth, but thou shalt meditate therein day and night that thou mayest observe to do according to all that is written therein. For then thou shalt make thy way prosperous, then shalt thou have good success. Have not I commanded thee? Be strong, have a good courage. Be not afraid, neither be thou dismayed. For the Lord thy God is with thee whithersoever thou goest. That's for any of us, but especially for us as leaders. Live that one out. I think it'll go a long ways, long ways in our church community. Verse 10, then Joshua commanded the officers of the people, saying, pass through the host. Command the people, saying, prepare you victuals, for within three days you shall pass over this Jordan to go in to possess the land, which the Lord your God giveth you to possess it. To the Reubenites, to the Gadites, to the half-tribe of Manasseh, spake Joshua, saying, Remember the word which Moses, the servant of the Lord, commanded you, saying, The Lord your God hath given you rest, hath given you this land. Your wives, your little ones, your cattle shall remain in the land which Moses gave you on this side, Jordan. But you shall pass before your brethren armed, all the mighty men of valor, and help them. Until the Lord hath given your brethren rest, as he hath given you. And they also have possessed the land which the Lord your God giveth them. Then you shall return unto the land of your possession and enjoy which Moses, the Lord's servant, gave you on this side, Jordan, toward the sun rising. And they answered Joshua, saying, All that thou commandest us, we will do, and whithersoever thou sendest us, we will go. According as we hearken unto Moses in all things, so will we hearken unto thee. Only the Lord thy God be with thee as he was with Moses. Whosoever he be that rebel against thy commandment, will not hearken unto thy words and all that thou commandest him, he shall be put to death. Only be strong and a good of a good courage. Quite a, an example of leadership and following. Quite an example. 
these folks said, we're there. We're there. It just seemed, as I was reading this, so much uh, similar to my father. It just was his passion. His passion. Whatever they say, that will do. As they look at scripture and they make practical application and says, this is a safe way, I'm going to follow it. Sometimes we get scared of that. Because we get so afraid that we're going to be following man and not following God. That's, that's what happens. We become afraid of it. Well, I hear from God and God tells me. You know, God was very interested, if you look through the whole Testament and through the New Testament in the church, to have leadership. And leadership was supposed to give direction. Now, there is qualifying factors how the leaders are supposed to give direction. But this was very, this was just the way God ordained it. Somehow we think we know better than God, and somehow we can sit ourselves over here on an island, and we have God speaking to us, and somehow we think we... But God was very intentional when he set this whole thing up. And he was very intentional here when he brought Joshua in. I can understand why, because Moses was quite a leader, and to think of filling Moses' shoes would have been quite a responsibility. But God said, Joshua, this is all I want you to do. I want you to be of good courage. I want you to be a strong. And I want you to take my words. And I want you to, how did you say that? Live them, eat them, sleep them. You have any leader of a church who will just make this book a part of their lives. He's, he's the one that's safe to follow. He's the one that's safe to be a part of a strong group mentality. And then Joshua goes to the people and they say, look, we're going to follow you just like we did Moses. But God was not satisfied to stop there. God was very intentional to make sure that these people are going to give him the loyalty, give Joshua the loyalty like Moses. And so over in chapter 3, when it was time to cross the Jordan... Then in verse 7 of chapter 3, it says, And the Lord said unto Joshua, This day will I begin to magnify thee in the sight of all Israel, that they may know that as I was with Moses, so I was, will be with thee. And he goes on to give direction to the crossing of the Jordan. So they had crossed the Red Sea. Moses held up his rod. The sea parted. God parted the sea. They walked over on dry land, and the Egyptians were drowned. Now it's time for another crossing. And I believe God, according to this, used this specific crossing to give, put in the hearts of the people the same kind of respect for leadership for Joshua, just like they had for Moses. But it says here, God was going to magnify. This is really encouraging. This little specific thing is really encouraging to me when I consider my place as a father. I'm sure you fathers aren't a whole lot different. And that is somehow I want to be big in the eyes of my wife and children. There's a part that I need to do. Actually, there's a big part that I need to do. I need to stay in the book. If I can be so intentional in allowing God's work to sanctify me and make me a man of God. Then God can come along 
and magnify me in their eyes. And so I pray that prayer numerous times. God, magnify me in the eyes of my wife and children. What is the purpose? So that I can leave. I want to be able to leave my family. So it says here, God would begin to magnify Joshua in the eyes of the people. He gave him the direction on how he should cross the Jordan and what they're going to do on the other side. And then at the crossing, chapter 4 and 14. So it's 3, 7, and 4, 14 in Joshua. It says, on that day, the Lord magnified Joshua in the sight of all Israel, and they feared him as they feared Moses all the days of his life. That's just really something. You know, we have a New Testament account there where this centurion came to Jesus and he had a servant that was homesick and he didn't really want Jesus to come home to his house. He may have felt the difference between the Jew and the Gentile. I don't even know what the real reason was. He may have considered that, and he really didn't feel worthy for Jesus to come. He says, look, I understand that this idea of how God has set up leadership. And so all you have to do is just say the word. I understand that. I get my direction, and I give direction. You got direction, and you give direction. Just say the word, and my servant will be healed. So idea of leadership. So God magnified Joshua in the eyes of the people. We have the story of Elijah and Elisha, and we've been just reading through that in family devotions. Elijah was, of course, he was a bit disillusioned. God came on the scene, and God says, well, this is what you need to do. One of the things was that he was supposed to ordain someone to replace him, and that was Elisha. Through his mantle, Elisha, Elisha left everything behind, followed him. And that day when Elijah was being taken away, and apparently this was a well-known fact, and the prophets, all the young prophets knew it, but as they're going along, Elijah says, look, you know that I'm going to be taken from you today. I would like you to just stay here with these prophets, and I'm going to go. Nope, I'm not leaving you. Did that twice. He followed. They came to the, was it the Jordan? They came to a river anyhow, and Elijah took the mantle, hit the waters, and the waters parted. They walked across, and it was over on the other side that Elijah got swept away. The mantle fell down. As was promised, he would get a double portion. Elisha took the mantle, and he did the very same thing. He hit the water with the mantle, said, where is the God of Elisha, or Elijah? And the waters parted. What was the response of the prophets? Those that were watching, they were up on a mountain. They had to watch this whole thing. They saw it happen. And they said, ha, the spirit of Elijah is upon Elisha. Now, can we follow leadership to a fault? Yes. I want you to know that. When the blind lead the blind, they both fall into the ditch. But I think there's something to leadership. And we like to talk about that a little bit today. What is one of the root difficulties? It's independence. 
But God seems to have favor to work by groups, not just. He started with Abraham, a man, but the whole time he had a vision. He saw ahead of him a great nation, a great nation. We have Old Testament, Israel as a nation, the New Testament era, the birth of the church and all of its functions. Again, in the New Testament, it didn't just somehow morph into a church. God was very intentional. As we heard this morning, I will build my church. Very intentional. I and you will find our fullest potential inside a group. We'll find our fullest potential because that's the way God has ordained it. Are there people in the world who are separated from everyone else? Yes, but that is not God's best intent. Again, let's go to Ephesians chapter 4. I want to draw a few thoughts out of that as we consider the congregation and its response to leadership. And I think we're going to just read verses 13 to 16. Uh, Maybe we'll back up and get verse 11. He gave some apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, some pastors and teachers. Why? For the perfecting of the saints, for the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ. Till we all come in the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God unto a perfect man, unto the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. It seems to me the only way I am going to find my fullest in Christ is through a body. Till we all come in the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God. Unto a perfect man. I am perfect along with you through Christ Jesus. Really, I don't know if I could say I'm perfect and I'm talking about sanctification and forgiveness and washing it be without blemish. But this perfection is within a body among my brothers and my sisters. That's where I become where it can be called a perfect man in the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. I'm perfect in Christ. That we henceforth be no more children tossed to and fro, carried about with every wind of doctrine by the slight of men, cunning craftiness whereby they lie in wait to deceive. I I told you that uh, example of the brother in our congregation who made a decision, made an application to Scripture and said, this is what God wants me to live out and didn't ask any of his brothers. And he kind of got himself into a problem. So he was supposed to keep the Sabbath. Well, then he started looking for others who also keep the Sabbath, but that are non-resistant, that don't believe in divorce and remarriage, that believe in church and state separation, and the list goes on and on. And he couldn't find any. He would have had to go out into the more of the evangelical world or some of that, um, you know, that thinking. And I told him, you're not safe alone. We need each other. We need each other. I'm not safe alone. I need others. What do you think about this, brother? 
What do you think about that? We need that discussion. We'll find our fullest potential in Christ. It will keep us safe. 15, but speaking the truth in love, that's, that's, that's what we need. Speaking the truth in love among us. May grow up into him in all things, all things, not some things, which is the head, even Christ, from whom the whole body fitly joined together. Just like a puzzle. I like puzzles when every piece is so cut so that it just fits the I've seen puzzles already that you kind of stick it in, you almost wonder, does it quite fit? Ah, I wonder if it belongs there, actually. Finally, you decide, well, yeah, there is no other piece. That must be the piece. This is fitly joined together. just fits right in. Compacted by that which every joint supplies according to the effectual working in the measure of every part. Don't think for a minute. I tell the, the young people who get baptized, I tell them, you are really important. Don't think that I'm just 15 years old, I'm not important. You're very important. There are some parts of the body that the medical field says you can live without. But I'm convinced that I'm not giving any of them up unless it's a life and death matter because I think God was intentional to put them there. I really think so. Every part making maketh increase of the body unto the edifying of itself in love. I think every part of the body has a job to do. Uh, I don't know why, it's just slipping my mind. The appendix, the appendix, that's a big deal. Just cut it out, just get rid of it. You don't need your appendix, really? I have not figured out what the appendix does, probably some of you know. I'm convinced that God put it in there for a reason. It wasn't just like an extra organ that I'm going to just kind of stick in there and it's going to make trouble one day and they could just cut it out. It'll give them some money to the government or to the medical field. I don't think so. I think there's a very specific purpose. Now, we'll all, if it gets infected, will I let them cut it out? Yeah, probably will. Will I just give it up for no good reason? No, I won't. Every part has a place to fill. Why did, did, why did Jesus teach his disciples to pray in the plural? Have you thought about that? Our Father, which art in heaven. He was very intentional. This whole idea of a community of believers, very intentional. Our Father, which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy, uh, our Father, which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Forgive us our debts. We forgive our our debtors and so forth. The plurality. The Jews had the saying about the plurality of the Lord's Prayer. They said it this way, let none pray the short prayer. That means in the single. Let none pray the short prayer. But that we would pray the plural number. God was very intentional in this idea of plurality. A.W. Tozer says this, the Christian life begins with the individual. A soul has a saving encounter with God and the new life begins. Not all the pooled efforts of any church can make a Christian out of a lost man. But once that transaction is done, 
the communion of believers will be found to be the best environment for the new life. Men are made for each other. Men are made for each other, and this is never more apparent than in the church. Consider a verse in Acts, Acts 2.42, and they continue steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship, and in the breaking of bread and in prayers. Four things, their doctrine, their fellowship, the breaking of bread, and the prayers. But I want to zero in just a little bit on this idea of fellowship. The word fellowship here is kononia, and it's often rendered communion. It properly denotes having things in common, or participation, or the idea of society, or the idea of friendship. It may apply to anything which may be possessed in common, or in which all may partake. Thus, all Christians have the same hope of heaven, the same joys, the same hatred of sin, the same enemies to contend with. Thus, they have the same subjects of conversation, of feeling, and of prayer. Or they have communion in all of these things. And thus, the early Christians had their property in common. The word here may apply to either or to all of these things, to their conversation, their prayers, their dangers, their property, and means that they were united To the apostles, they continued with the apostles. They continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine, fellowship, breaking of bread, and prayers. They continued steadfastly in the apostles. We see again that intentional leadership. It may be added that the effect of a revival of religion is to unite Christians more and more to bring those who were before separated to union and love. Christians feel that they are a band of brethren and that however much they were separated before, they became Christians. Now they have the great and important interest in common. They're united in feelings and interests and dangers and conflicts and opinions and in the hope, the blessed hope of immortality. There is probably no recent sharper reminder of this than the horrible atrocities that happened in Missoula. Here was a young family who said not only fooey to the church, fooey to leadership, we don't need you, but they even said it to their family. And they completely isolated themselves. I remember a number of years ago in being a very good friend of Urban Mass, who is James's father, and working through some difficulties there in the home, I had a conversation with James himself. Later on, I said to Urban, the decisions that James is making will get him into trouble. I never, ever, in my wildest dreams, would have ever dreamed that. But it's a very sharp reminder that we are not safe alone. We're not safe alone. And I'm here to tell you, 
I think it would be God's will if, if miles of separation will keep you from being a part. So we need to be willing to pick up and move to be a part of a body. Okay, so here in Ephesians, we had these three things that leadership is for, for the perfecting of the saints, for the work of the ministry, and for the edifying of the body of Christ. Again, perfection, complete furnishing. God said, I, I was just looking in uh, Romans chapter 8, verse 28, all things work together for good to them that are called according to Christ Jesus. And then it goes on to say that we were predestinated to be made into the image of Christ. And it goes on to say that we could be, that Christ would be the firstborn of many brethren. So way back, maybe even before time, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit spanned out what this would look like. They saw Abraham, they saw Israel, They saw the Jewish nation. They saw the end of the Jewish nation. They saw the birth of the church. And the whole point was that one day Jesus Christ would be the firstborn. He would die. He would resurrect a new life. All of us who are going to be a part of it must die a spiritual death and be raised in new life in Christ Jesus. And then he would be the firstborn among many brethren. The whole idea of the church. And then they said, we're going to have leadership. And what is that for? For the perfecting of the saints. You want to be perfect? You're going to get perfect by sitting in a community of believers where there are those that lead out. They take this word of God. They pray over it. They live it out. And then they break this bread to you. That's how it works. Way back before time, God said, this is the way it's going to work. And we know we can't defy the laws of God. There's so many different laws that we try to defy. The law of sowing and reaping. Well, surely I can do this and I won't reap. We should find out sooner or later we reap. A simple thing of seven days and keeping one for the Lord, the Lord's day. They've tried it. It doesn't work. Work a 10-day week. Or don't keep one day and work, keep them all the same as just nose to the grindstone working. It don't work. We are wired. There's some things that God has intentionally done and put it in place to defy it will be to our own ruin. So the best place to be is in the church to have leaders and their job is to preach the word, to exhort and admonish so that we can be perfect, completely furnished. How many of us would like to live the rest of our lives in a half-finished house? How many of you sisters would like if your husband started to build a house and the house is half done and that's just the way you let it? Perfection. Perfection. Complete. The leadership is for the work of the ministry. And we're just saying this. I think it's good for us to remember this is what they're for. If I'm going to give my... I'm going to bring my family and I'm going to be subject to the leadership at Zion Christian Fellowship. This is what the leadership is for. And I trust they're filling it. It's for the work of the ministry. They're going to be servants. They're going to serve among the congregation. They're going to be, it's going to be like intentionally building a building, putting everything in place. Everything has its place. It's their responsibility. 
It is interesting that God told, God never wanted the children of Israel to have a king. Why was that? They had judges. But I think we see the difference when children of Israel asked for a king like the other nations. And God said, you know, Samuel, I don't want them to have a king. But if they desperately want a king, then you give them a king. But you tell them what's going to happen. He's going to tax you. He's going to take your children as servants. I'm not sure what all the other things were. Judges, well, we read about Samuel. Samuel went around from one city to the next town, to the next town, to the next town, throughout the Jewish nation and just served them. But not a king. The king has his palace and you're here to serve them. That's church. We don't have kings. We have judges. We have leaders. Leaders who are serving for the well-being of the congregation. Once the leaders lose that, it becomes chaotic. So it is today. Pastors are there for the people. Pastors are there for the people. Let's go to Hebrews chapter 13 and want to look at a couple of verses in Hebrews as we consider relating to leadership. Hebrews chapter 13, just breaking into verse 7, remember them which have the rule over you who have spoken unto you the word of God whose faith follow considering the end of their conversation. Where we become almost afraid of verses like rule uh, portions of verses like rule over you down in verse 17 obey them that rule over you submit but the Hebrew writer was not afraid to simply put that in I think it's important as a congregation to be able to look at our leaders and to be able to say they're called of God and God is speaking through them I think that is good Can a leader get out of their place? Can they add things that are not biblical? Well, definitely. God will help us find our way out of those things. But this is what, this is remember them which have the rule over you. This word remember simply means bring to mind. Bring to mind. In other words, it is saying remember them that rule over you. Bring to mind them that God has put to rule over you. Bring to mind. Think about it. Think about the way they live their lives. Think about the result of their lives. Now, some, I think some commentaries, some commentators would look at this of ministers who've already passed off the scene. They've done their life's work and they're gone. And it may be that. And so we look at their lives. They were leaders. We looked at how they lived their lives and we see the result of their lives. Call it to mind. Bring it to remembrance. The Apostle Paul had uh, knew this well enough that he could say, follow me as I follow Christ. Follow me as I follow Christ. And so there is that part of following our leaders as they follow Christ. This can become hard because we know we're not supposed to just follow men, but we're following men as they follow Christ. Bible clearly tells us that if we can't love our brother who we do see, 
We can't love God who we don't see. We're just kidding ourselves if we think we can. So this whole thing of people in our lives and taking direction from them is a good thing. God has clearly put leadership in our lives with a purpose. Whose faith follow? But I thought I follow God. Considering the end of their behavior. What an important thing. Looking at those and saying, you know, I like their faith in God. I appreciate their faith in God. I appreciate how the minister loves his wife. I appreciate how he relates to his children. I appreciate how he does business. Call it to mind. That's what he's saying. I am for an occupation in the dairy industry. And I know I don't have it figured out. I know that there are others who have value that I would benefit from. And so I like to go to farmers who are farming longer than I or farmers who have been in a niche market longer than I've been. I like to go to meetings where they give a presentation on how to be a better farmer. I want to be a better farmer. I don't want to be, I'm not just following these men. I want to learn from these men, and I'm going to apply it in my life so I also can be a better farmer. And that's the way it works here. You look at your minister's. You learn how they do it so you can be a better Christian. You're not going to be a second Elvin and a second Larry and a second Earl. But their lives are going to help you become a better Christian. And so I want to make it very very intentional of sitting at the feet of older men and learning from them. I want to learn from them just like I do in my physical occupation. We got a similar verse over in 1 Thessalonians and chapter 5 and verse 12 it says, and we beseech you brethren to know them which labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you. This phrase to know them, this phrase to know them is the same idea, to call to remembrance, to recognize them. You, you not only know that they're a leader, but you recognize them for their responsibility. A very classic illustration of that would be the time that my daughter went to get her, take her driver's test. And the way they do there is you go in and you let them, you, you make your appointment ahead, you get in there, you let them know you're there, and then you sit down and you wait on your turn. And we were sitting there, myself and my daughter, and right next to me was a young man who was also waiting to take his driver's test. I noticed that this young man, man had a I-do-not-care attitude. It was written all over him. He sat in a building, he had his stocking cap on, and it was pulled way down over. He was slouched way down in his seat that his shoulders were below the top of the chair. He, his pants were 
almost down off of his buttocks. And his shoes were untied. So the instructor comes out. He was before my daughter. So he came out, and the instructor walked over there, took one look at his shoes, and said, Sir, tie your shoes. And the fellow was sitting there, slouched in his chair, stocking cap way down over his face, and just looking into the instructor's face like, and I'm thinking, this is an authority. You're dependent on that authority. I mean, sit up and tie your shoes. And he just sat there. The instructor wasn't taken aback. He looked down at his shoes, looked at the fellow, said, tie your shoes. And he did move. Now, that young man knew that he was an authority, but he didn't recognize him. He didn't know him. He didn't give him any place in his heart to speak. Sometimes we're in danger of that. The minister comes to talk to us, and we just kind of block him out. So, the instructor gave up. Come on. And there was a parent over here, and I looked, after he went out the door, I said, he failed. You watch. He failed before he left his seat, I am sure. And he failed the test. But I think he failed there. Whether he failed later, I don't know. He failed right there. He didn't recognize. He didn't know them. He didn't esteem him. He didn't give any room in his life for that leader to speak. Now, did that instructor have any good reason to tell him to tie his shoes? He might have got tangled in the brake in the accelerator and he would have had an accident. It would have been his life. But I think there was a little bit of a test there, probably. Is he going to respond? One look at the person, you could tell that's who he was, and he didn't respond. And we could look at that and say, well, he had no business telling him to tie his shoe. Yes, he was, a le- he, was, he was an authority. And if he decided the man's shoes should be tied, then tie your shoes. I think we spend too much time in churches trying to decide what is really important and what is not. And I take you back to my father. There were some things that he didn't spend a lot of time trying to decide why we did this and why we didn't do this. He just simply said, you know what? It's nothing wrong with the leadership asking us to do this. They probably have a good purpose for it, and he didn't question it. You know, if we have a church full of people like that, change things. I'm not talking about people who are going to sit in churches and just swallow everything, and, and, and the church leader can actually ask people to do things that are against uh, wisdom, and I'm not talking about that. But in practical church life, there are things that we ask to be done that is just simply the Bible doesn't say. I mean, the Bible says to do everything decently in order, and so we have some decency in order. I mean, not everybody just runs up here and grabs the pulpit. We have an order. That's the way things are done. Well, yeah, we make application to that. And so there's a lot of those things that we can get so tangled in and trying to decide, well, what does God think about it? Know them who are over you in the Lord. It says, who are over you and admonish you here in this passage. To know them which labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you. Give them room in your heart. 
Don't be like that young man waiting to take his driver's test. Uh, open up your heart. Speak. Esteem them very highly. Why? For their work's sake. Again, just give them room in your heart for their input and their relationship. One of the places that I think this really causes us a bit of a difficulty is when a minister wants to speak into the lives of the young people in our homes. I've seen it a lot of times where the parent will stand between the minister and the child and protect their children. And that has not gone well. As far as I'm concerned, any of our ministers have the freedom to go directly to my children and point out things in their life, and I will stand with the minister. I have watched this thing over time. And the family that will make out the best is the family who will stand with the church. Now, of course, there's a whole other side, and we're not going to get into that, where by all means, ministry, don't get between the parents and the children. Don't separate marriages unless it's life and death situation. As much as we can, the idea is keep family together because this is the way God ordained it. We had a family come into our congregation from another congregation, And their teenage children didn't want to come. We were too conservative. We were too old-fashioned. We were too Mennonite. They didn't want to come. And it was at a place where the one young man, the father was not so sure that one young man would come along. And I said, well, listen, if you think this is the right thing to do, you make the move. And you let the pieces fall where they're going to fall. Well, the young man came along, but he sat in his seat Sunday after Sunday with his arms crossed, slouched in his seat with a pout on his face. He was not going to. Today, he is such a faithful young man, so involved in the church, so supportive. He looks back and gives his own testimony. I don't know what I was thinking, but... There was a real key there. The parents stood locked together with the church. They didn't side with their children. We had a young man, a family come to us that the young man had went out in the world and he lived it up. And about the time this family was coming to our congregation, the young man was starting to have a bit of a heart of repentance and he started cutting off some of the things in his life. About that time, he wanted to move home. And the parents came and said, what do I do? I said, listen, you come up with a list of rules, what you expect. We don't, he doesn't need to be converted to come back home, but this is the rules of the home. And we as a congregation, we as a ministry, we're going to stand with you. And so I had the wonderful privilege of sitting with the parents and this young man, shaved head, everything, and said, listen, Here's your parents' expectations of you. Will you agree to it or will you not? He agreed to it. And it was just a few months later that he took the hard road of working through getting born again and saved, somehow get past the fact that he was saved before, 
turned it all away, would God accept him? And today, he's a wife and a child and a faithful member of the church. But here again, those parents stood right with the church. Now, I could tell you stories of parents who did it. And the outcome was quite different. Quite different. So important. Sticking together, working together brings a sense of security. Each man on his own brings chaos. In this passage here, it says in verse 13, 1 Thessalonians 5, 13, and be at peace among yourselves. That's a big deal. That's a big deal. Be at peace among yourselves. You know, God has given us a very, very, two very, very beautiful directives. One is Matthew 18, as we know it. If my brother has sinned against me, I will go to him and I will sit down with him alone and share with him, which is very important. And so I hope you leaders do that here too. When someone comes to me and wants to complain about another, uh, one of their parishioners, I'll say, did you talk to them? Well, then don't talk to me. Go talk to them. Now, if they want to come to me and ask advice of how to go about it, that is quite different. But you need to go in person. So God has given these specific directions. If you don't hear, take two or three with you. And then only it comes to the church. A beautiful directive. Then we have the one over in Matthew chapter 5 where it says, if I go to the altar and there I remember that my brother has ought against me. So now I'm not just worrying about if someone has sinned against me, but I'm thinking about someone who has a problem with me. You know what? That brother I know has an issue with me. We would stop. I mean, it's so very specific. Just leave your gift right by the altar. Don't offer it first. I'll take care of it tomorrow. No, leave your gift right there. Go and be reconciled to your brother. Be at peace among yourselves. We go a long ways. All the provisions are made for it. In counseling husbands and wives, sometimes the relationship is very cold. But I remind them that God has given us a beautiful thing called love. And the power of love is immense. Love is great enough you can actually love your enemies. You can pray for them. You can do good to them. You can bless them. And you can love, bless, do good, and pray. Four things. And you know, in our relationships among ourselves, if we would do those four things, it would do a lot. I can remember a time when I had an issue with another brother. He was just one of those brothers that just, just irked me. Just, and, and I allowed it to irk me. And so every little thing was just like, ugh. And I knew it was wrong. And I tried to overcome it. I tried to overcome it. I tried to find grace and I couldn't. So one day I went to the altar. And I was back, and I, I counseled with an older brother, and uh, he told me something that transformed our relationship. And it was kind of like this. He said, you go find a way to bless that brother over and over again. Just go find a way to bless him. And well, that's the last thing I wanted to do. 
Who feels like blessing someone that you might actually have hatred for, but it transformed? Today, he's a minister in another congregation, and he's probably the closest one I am to. We talk all the time. One who used to irritate me. And so if we could just live out these four things that we're told to do to our enemies, if we could apply them even among ourselves, and that brother, that sister, that you have a little bit of hard time loving, if you will love them, you will bless them, you will do good to them, and you will pray for them. It'll change your relationship. Love is so powerful. It does four things. It beareth all things, believeth all things, it hopeth all things, and it endureth all things. Powerful. There are four things it does. It suffers long, seeketh not its own, it's not easily provoked, and it thinketh no evil. I think love is the oil that'll grease the wheel. Be at peace among yourselves. This power of love has the power to conquer. If it can our enemies, how much more the little oddities of our brothers and our sisters among ourselves. The classic example that I just, I just marvel at is uh, in the Martyr's Mirror of George Whippy. I'm not sure what page it's on, but George Whippy was a family man. He had a wife, he had children, and apparently they just, they just reached out to the community. They loved their neighbors. They loved their enemies. And they just took food to the hungry ones around them. That's the way they lived life. And one day he was apprehended. George was apprehended. And he was, he was condemned to die by drowning because of his faith in Christ. And so when he was brought to the executioner, you know, they had those men who killed him. That was their job. They were government, part of the government. Their job was to kill. And he brought him. And when this man looked and saw who it was, he says, I can't do it. I can't do it. I can't kill this man. This man has brought food to my house. I'm not sure, that would have took quite a, some boldness to stand up and say, I'm not executing this man when I'm told to by the government. And he didn't. And the martyr's mirror says they looked two weeks to find somebody who would be willing to just put him in a bag and push him over the edge into the river. Two weeks till they found something. Now, if that kind of love is that powerful to our enemies? Are we just fooling ourselves to think that that can't work in a group of brothers and sisters? Pray for each other. Love each other. Bless each other. Do good to each other. Another thing that I think is very important for the congregation is to pray for our leaders. I could just hear it ringing through my mind, the Apostle Paul, pray for us. Pray for us. Pray for your leaders. Pray for me that utterance may be given, the Apostle Paul said. So why don't we have? James says we have not because we ask not. Well, we don't have. Or we don't have because we ask amiss. Pray for our leaders. It's absolutely essential to have those praying for their leaders. It's 
not an easy place to stand. There's many decisions that have to be made and hard decisions that need to be made. We are vulnerable just like anyone else to rise up in pride, to rise up in selfishness, to respond in fleshly ways, to even get angry, to get upset. Pray for us. An example of the power of prayer is there in James chapter 5 when it talks about anointing. We're supposed to confess our faults and pray one for another that we may be healed. It says the effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man, it availeth much. Gives us a beautiful example of Elijah. Elijah prayed, it didn't rain for three and a half years and then he prayed again and it rained. I just see Elijah up there on the hill after words and he's praying and he says to his servant, go out and look if there's a cloud in the sky and the servant comes back, no cloud. Does it again. Go look. There's a cloud in the sky. Come back and no clouds. Seven times. Seven times. The seventh time, I see a little cloud the size of a man's hand. Are you willing to pray for this church and for these leaders? Even if you'd sent your servant seven times to see if it was fulfilled yet. But just see a little bit of a glimmer of hope. And then pray all the harder. What a blessing. Hebrews chapter 13, verse 17. Uh, The other verse there in Hebrews, obey and submit. And because the Hebrew writer said that, that means that there are going to be some things in church that we're going to just simply have to accept. Submission isn't submission until we're faced with something we don't want to do. A wife would never have to submit if her husband never asked her to do something that wasn't exactly the way she would have liked to see it. Let me tell you how this works out, this verse. Remember them which have the rule over you who have spoke, uh, excuse me, 17. Obey them that have the rule over you. Submit yourselves, for they watch for your souls. There's the responsibility of the leader, watching for their souls. We care, as we heard about the good shepherd. Cares. Cares about your well-being. For they watch for your souls as they that must give an account. They may do it with joy, not with grief, for that is unprofitable for you. You know, there's a real blessing in being a real supportive of the strong group mentality, being in. There's a real blessing that comes back to you. You know, when you reap, you reap to the flesh, your flesh reap destruction, so to the spirit, you will of the spirit reap life everlasting. This law of sowing and reaping. Here's another law, and that one is, if you can obey and you can submit to the leaders because they're watching out for your soul, there's a blessing going to come back to you. This accountability, I'm not sure exactly what it is. Um, It may have something to do when God comes back for his bride and the church leaders have to give an account. I don't know. But there's a more practical thing where there's an account given. It happens numerous times that someone will call and ask. It happens for, say, a family wants to go from our congregation to another congregation pastor from that church will call and say, so-and-so is coming to our church. What do you have to say? 
and I have to give an account. Now it would be for their best if I could give in a good account. But I have to be honest. I just had to had a call from a man from an orphanage who one of the young ladies in our congregation would like to be a part of that orphanage. And I said to him, well, I'm going to have to be honest with you of who this young lady was. Who she is right now is different than what who she was. And I have to give an honest account. Will she get the job? I don't know. But I have to be honest. We have to give an account. Young men, you're sitting here today. One day you may go to a father. You may need to ask a father if you can take the hand of his daughter in courtship. That young man, that father might come to me if you're in my congregation and say, what do you think of this young man? Oh, it is such a blessing if I can say I have only good to say. That is so fun. I recommend them. I support it. But you know what is really, really hard? When I got, and I've done this numerous times, well, here's the issue. And the Bible here says, it's not for your blessing. It's not for your good. It's unprofitable for you. And so this whole idea of just in making that connection with Christ Jesus, getting born again and being filled with the Holy Spirit, that the best place for us is in a congregation with this idea of being a strong group, having a strong group mentality, having leaders, respecting them, recognizing them, giving room in our hearts for them, we'll turn around and come back to bless you over and over again. I actually think there's right ways to leave churches. I think there's right ways to do that. I wrote it here, somewhere, three things, if I can find it, kindly, carefully, and respectfully. You can leave churches. We have people that sometimes leave our congregation. It's possible to leave kindly, carefully, and respectfully. Loyalty. Uh, just reading a couple of scriptures here in closing. Colossians chapter 2, verses 1 to 3. For I would that ye knew what great conflict I have for you and for them at Laodicea, and for as many as have not seen my face in the flesh, that their hearts might be comforted. Being knit together in love. There we have that powerful word called love, being knit together in love, and unto all riches of the full assurance of understanding to acknowledgement of the mystery of God and of the Father and of Christ, in whom are hid all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 10, Apostle Paul writing to the Corinthians, And the Corinthians, with all their challenges, now I beseech you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you all speak the same thing, that there be no divisions among you, but that ye be perfectly joined together in the same mind and in the same judgment. And that would be my prayer for you all as you 
continue to walk together as you seek God, especially with this ordination. My prayer for you is that you would all speak the same thing, that there will be no divisions among you, be perfectly joined together in the same mind and in the same judgment. And I wanted to mention yet, I appreciate it, Brother Elvin's message on the minister and the, the encouragement. It's a good place to fill many, many times. And we're just probably like so many others. We tend to complain when things aren't so well, but we forget to uh, rejoice when things are going well, which is most of the time. And it's an enjoyable place to fill, especially with a church full of people who are one, together, everyone loves each other. So may God bless you as you seek God together and pray and pray lots. And don't give up praying. Pray for the ordination and then pray and continue to pray for your congregation. Let's pray together, Heavenly Father. We just ask that you would bless these dear brothers and sisters. Father, I pray that as these dear people have spent two days together considering leadership, calling of an elder, I ask your smile upon their lives. I ask that you would very specifically choose out a man to fill this place. Father, I pray that each one that is represented here, and especially my heart goes out to all the young families and the little children hanging on the skirts. Father, would you bless each one of these homes, unite their hearts together with one common goal and purpose, and that is in serving Christ Jesus. Bring them such a unified vision that their children could grow up and their grandchildren and the following generations in a community of believers where there is love, where there is care one for another. May you meet every need. Father, I pray that all of those who are here would give room in their hearts to their leaders, to recognize them, to know them. And would you make this congregation a lighthouse throughout this area of place here in Iowa, a testimony that will go forth for your name and that souls will be converted and the community would be affected and yes, even the United States government would be infected by the church of Jesus Christ. For we pray in Jesus' name.